Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Amen, amen, amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Fear is a part of life. It's a part of living in a cursed world. Not all fears are necessarily bad. I want my son to have a healthy fear of heights. I want want him to have a healthy fear of things that are dangerous to him. And certainly there are things that we should be cautious of. But the problem comes when we are fearful without cause, when we are irrationally afraid. Now, everyone faces fears, but did you know that according to one recent study, somewhere between five and ten percent, one out of every ten, maybe, of the general population not only struggles with a fear, but with a phobia. A phobia is an irrational, debilitating fear. For some people, it's a fear of heights. For some, it's a fear of snakes or a fear of spiders. For some, it's a fear of public speaking. They just The very thought of it makes them start to sweat or, or their throats start to tighten. Some people have a fear of a, an object or some other circumstance, fear of flying, for example, those can become debilitating, irrational fears. And I don't want to freak you out, but just because it's a phobia and it's an irrational fear doesn't mean it's completely impossible. I mean, sometimes bridges do collapse, right? I mean, if you have a fear of bridges, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to debilitate you, but you know, sometimes bridges do collapse. And sometimes poisonous spiders do get into your house. I can remember when we were living in Heinemann, uh, right before we moved, in fact, that by God's grace, I found a brown recluse in our living room. And I was able to kill it before it got to my son or my wife or me. And so sometimes there are dangerous things that can happen. I don't want you to be phobic about anything. But sometimes planes do fall out of the sky. We just had a, a, a series of planes that were grounded because of, of an explosion that took place in one of them. Even phobias, even irrational fears can at least have a, have a seed of reality behind them. I want to talk to you, though, for a moment about impossible fears. While a phobia could potentially happen, shouldn't be, shouldn't be phobic about it, shouldn't be uh, debilitated by it, there are some things you never need to fear. You never need to fear the Martians landing. There are no little green men, okay? There are demonic spirits. 
But if you're a child of God, you don't need to be afraid of them either. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul said, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, because you don't have to be afraid of them if you put on the full armor of God. You don't have to be afraid of them if you stand in the power of the Lord. If you're putting on the breastplate of righteousness, you got the shield of faith, you got all the armor, you got the sword of the spirit, all of the armor of God, you don't need to be afraid. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. But there's no little green men coming for you. I know there's all kinds of videos popping up, and even the government's releasing videos now. And there again, principalities and powers, but not little green men from Mars. You don't have to be afraid of that. And the other thing you don't need to be afraid of, church, if you're a child of God, you do not need to be afraid of the Antichrist. You don't need to be afraid of the tribulation. You do not need to be afraid of the day of the Lord. Because if you know Jesus, you will not be here. You will not be here. And so as we consider tonight the encouragement that Paul is giving to the Thessalonian believers, I want you to understand, again, why Paul has to write this letter. Look with me uh, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. I beseech you, verse 1, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Don't be phobic about this. Don't be debilitated by this. Neither by what? By spirit or word or letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except. Now, we'll talk about the except in a moment. But someone had written a letter claiming to be from Paul telling the Thessalonian believers that because they were enduring tribulation, Because they were being persecuted, they were in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is here, and you're living in it. And they were very confused, and they were very stressed out because they said, well, Paul told us we weren't going to have to go through this. Paul said the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we're not children of wrath. We're children of the day. God hasn't appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we don't need to be worried. But now he's saying that we misunderstood him. And now we're now we're freaking out. We're afraid. Now, why would somebody write that letter? Because the devil wants to steal your hope. He wants to steal your hope. He wants you to live in fear. And the reason he wants you to live in fear is because he wants to tear down the foundations of your faith. And as the psalmist wrote to us in Psalm 11 verse 3 if the foundations be destroyed what can the righteous do so the devil is going after the foundations the foundations of your faith the foundations of your love and for the thessalonians and for us the foundations of your hope and so we have to remember in order to distinguish the lies of the devil from the truth of god's word That God's word must be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. We must follow, we must rightly divide the word of truth. That means we've got to dig into it, we've got to discern it, we've got to understand it in context. We have to compare scripture with scripture so we're not pulling things out of context, making the Bible say whatever we want it to say. And so that's what we're going to do tonight as we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Now, last uh, several times we were in this book, back in chapter 1, we told you the theme of this book is encouragement in the face of persecution. That's the theme. That's what Paul tells us in, in verses 3 through 4. He's already told us the purpose again here in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so what we have done is we've entitled this study, Courage and Clarity in the Face of Conflict. Paul wants to encourage the Christians with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I was listening to uh, Jeff Foxworthy this morning and not just tell jokes, although he was telling some pretty good jokes, as Jeff Foxworthy is more than capable of doing. But more than that, he was sharing his testimony as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he was talking about growing up as a kid and Jeff grew up with a, another guy that you have probably heard of. I know Stacy's heard of him. S. Truett Cathy, who founded Chick-fil-A. And uh, Jeff and uh, Truett knew each other. And he said that S. Truett Cathy used to tell me something when I was a kid. He'd say, hey, Jeff, do you know how you know whether or not somebody needs encouragement? And Jeff said, well, how do you know somebody needs encouragement? If they're breathing. If they're breathing, they need encouragement. You need encouragement. I need encouragement. I was encouraged uh, by some of uh, the things that Jeff shared uh, today uh, in the video I was watching about his testimony in Jesus. That was very encouraging. Uh, so uh, we'll, have some, uh, we'll have some laughs in heaven together, I'm sure, someday. But uh, Paul wants to encourage these believers, and he also wants to give them not just encouragement and courage, but clarity. And so tonight... Chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, we're going to look at rapture versus wrath. And Paul is going to bring some clarity to the confusion that was taking place in this church. A church he had written. The, the, the uh, first key explanation and revelation of the rapture of the church. Now, uh, the rapture, as we've seen before, uh, as we saw when we were studying 1 Thessalonians, as we saw when we studied Revelation, uh, the rapture was actually revealed in the Old Testament. It was talked about by Jesus. Uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 26, 20 uh, talked about the fact that some in the day uh, of trouble would would be hidden from judgment. They would enter into their chambers and hide themselves as the wrath of God passed over. Uh, Zephaniah chapter two, verse three, some of you will be worthy to escape what's coming. Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, that we should uh, want to be counted worthy to escape the wrath of God that is coming on the earth. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus said in the New Testament at the end of the book, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth, Revelation 3.10. And the Greek grammar there is, I will take you out of and to. I will remove you from the situation. I'll remove you from the trial that's coming on the whole world. And as I shared with you before, I'll share with you again. The only way you can escape the trial coming on the whole world is if you're out of the world. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Now, some people, when they come to 2 Thessalonians, they think that the book is teaching the exact opposite of what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians and of what Jesus promised in Luke and in Revelation. They think that, Second Thessalonians teaches us that we will 
go into tribulation or we will at the very least be persecuted by the coming Antichrist. And I'm going to show you from the text tonight why that is not the case. And so as we look tonight in chapter 2, I want to tell you this week we're going to look at this chapter from the perspective of the rapture, and then next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at these same verses, but from the perspective of wrath. But because this subject is so divisive and there's so much confusion, and Paul is writing specifically to clear up this confusion, we're just going to focus on the first aspect of this tonight. So next week we'll look at the man of sin, we'll zero in on him and the wrath of God that is coming, but tonight I want to show you what Paul says to clear up the confusion that was brought not by Paul, but by a pseudo-Paul, by a false letter from Paul saying that the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, let's look again at verses 1 and 2 at Paul's appeal to the church. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, I beseech you, I appeal to you, I'm pleading with you. I'm making a strong appeal to you, brethren, and I'm basing this appeal on two things. I'm basing it on the fact that Jesus is coming back and we will be gathered together unto him. Now, you should be able to see from that verse that he is referring back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, where he has already explained to them that Jesus is coming back in the clouds, he's going to call us up. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we are told to comfort one another with these words, to specifically use this promise of God as a comfort to one another. And so as Paul says, hey guys, don't be shaken He's reminding them of the truth that he's already taught them. Jesus is coming and he will gather us together to himself. But here's the lie. Notice. Verse two, that you be not so shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. So the truth is that Jesus is coming and he'll gather us together with him. But the lie is that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. If you have a, a, a King James, a New King James, it says a day of Christ. Uh, if you have a, a newer translation, it probably says day of the Lord. And the reason for that is because of the, uh, the difference in the manuscripts that are being translated. I'm not going to uh, get into that tonight, uh, but I just want to say this. I uh, do not believe as many do believe, I do not believe that those are two different events. I don't believe that the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are different. I believe that they are the same event, but from different perspectives. That the day of Christ emphasizes the hope of the church. The day of the Lord emphasizes the judgment of the world. But they, that they are the same event. And I'm going to show you again uh, just a little bit about that tonight. I've taught through the book of Revelation. We spent over a year in the book of Revelation. And so we've already spent a lot of time talking about the day of the Lord. And I have shown you from the scriptures why I believe that the day of the Lord is not a single day. It is not just the second coming. The day of the Lord encompasses the time. Revelation 6, we find at the end of the, the opening of the sixth seal that the 
the sun is being darkened, the uh, uh, moon turned to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy, and that is the last signal event before the beginning of the day of the Lord. And we talked about the fact that the seven trumpet judgments are the beginning of the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. That is the time of judgment, and it doesn't just happen for 24 hours. It extends till the end, really even beyond the end of, uh, of the tribulation period because it really encompasses also the judgment at the very end of the kingdom when uh, the final rebellion takes place and uh, God smokes with fire the enemies of God and there is the final battle and the final end of all war as God finally brings about the new heaven and the new earth. But for sake of time tonight, the day of the Lord, day of Christ, I believe same event, just different names, different emphasis. And so what Paul is again saying is do not think that you are going to have to be in the day of the Lord, that you're going to have to go through that. Don't think that. Don't believe that. Somebody's coming along and telling you. Now, understand that if Paul is trying to comfort them, and Paul's trying to give them hope, and Paul is just saying, well, the day of the Lord hadn't happened yet, but you're still going to have to go into it. So just get ready. That's not real comforting, right? Well, I know it hasn't started yet, but, but you better, better be ready. That's not what he says. He says, guys, don't freak out. You're not in the day of the Lord. And then he's going to explain why we don't have to worry. Again, he's going to repeat and explain why we don't have to worry about it. Now, I don't expect anyone here to get fooled by a letter claiming to be written by the Apostle Paul, okay? If you, if you go to your mailbox tomorrow and somebody wrote a letter with the return address, the Apostle Paul from Ephesus, you know that's a forgery, right? It, it could happen that somebody will, you know, un, unearth some ancient document that they claim is from the Apostle Paul. That could always happen, but, but I, these other two sources are still a threat to the church. What are they again? Let's look quickly again. There, there are three ways that, that these false teachings come into the church. Uh, some come in by spirit, some come in by word, and of course, some in the first century were coming in by letters purporting to be from the apostles when they weren't actually written by the apostles. So what does it mean by spirit? This is when somebody has a false revelation that they said that God has given them a new revelation concerning prophecy. Sometimes you, you hear that online. Actually, if you're online a lot, you hear it a lot. That somebody, oh, God showed me something that nobody's ever seen before. God showed me something that God's, un, God's revealed something to me about prophecy that no one has ever, has ever understood before, and I'm the one that God chose. Don't be deceived by a spirit. John says, Apostle John in 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits to see whether they be from God. Because there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. You should expect to see and encounter a lot of false revelations. So just brace for it. Just be prepared for it. The other word, way, though, is, notice, a, a spirit, but also by word. What does that mean? That means a false interpretation or a twisting of scripture and so something someone coming by spirit is subverting the word of god they're trying to add to the word of god but someone coming by word they are just 
not correctly handling the Word of God. They're taking things out of context. They're using the Bible, but they're not using it correctly. And they're trying to dismantle your hope in the promises of God by twisting, misusing. They may not even realize they're doing it, folks, but they are so convinced that they're right that they are taking the Scriptures and they're trying to twist them and pretzel them into uh, fit the mold that they want to uh, convince you of. And so this happens as well a lot when we talk about prophecy. There is a lot of twisting of Scripture when it comes to understanding prophecy. And so after Paul's appeal not to be shaken, Paul gives the church a command. And he gives you a command. He gives me a command. And the command is in verses 3 and 4. Don't be deceived. Let no man deceive you. By any means, don't let it come by a false revelation. Oh, God gave me this special revelation into prophecy, and I'm going to be able to reveal to you something. That, don't be deceived by that. But also don't be deceived by the guy standing up in the pulpit. And by the way, everything I tell you tonight, you better be a Berean. You better take it to the word of God. You better check up and make sure that Pastor DJ is right, because Pastor DJ is not always right either. I'm fallible. This book is infallible. So you need to make sure that you check everything I say and any, everything anyone says with the word of God. And I tell you that especially tonight because I'm going to share some uh, a perspective with you that is not the majority perspective. That is not the majority position. I'm going to share with you a minority position, but I believe it is the biblical position. I'm going to show you why tonight. But here's how you don't get deceived, okay? Paul says there are two events that must take place. Now, there's more than two. We know that from Revelation, right? We've seen in Revelation chapter 6 that there are six seals that have to be broken before the day of the Lord can take place. But Paul's not, he's not unpacking everything, but he's just highlighting two events and he's going to show us how they're connected, how they're related to one another. Two conjoined events that must take place before anybody has to worry about the day of the Lord or the day of Christ being at hand and those two events are number one in the greek the word apostasia and number two the revealing of the man of sin who we call the beast or even though it's not the word most often used in the new testament the word most commonly used by the church today is the word antichrist we most often call him the Antichrist. That is a biblical term. I'm not saying you shouldn't call him that. I'm just uh, uh, highlighting the fact that that's not the most common name for him in the Bible. The most common name is he's the beast. He's a beast, okay? Uh, but Paul says, before the day of the Lord can begin, the Antichrist has got to be on the scene. The man of sin has to be revealed. And before that can happen, the apostasia has to take place. Now, what is the apostasia? What is the apostasia? Okay, it's a Greek word, and I want to show you what it means. It comes, the, the, the noun form comes from the verb form. The verb form is aphistemi. I'm probably mispronouncing that. You probably know how to pronounce it better than I do. Uh, <clears throat> but apostasia, it, it comes from the Greek word that means to leave or to depart and it's derived from two other Greek words, which means to, to stand away from or away from stand. Now, it does not have to mean a spiritual departure. It simply means a departure. Sometimes it applies a desertion, according to helps word studies. Uh, apostasy, 
But literally, in its most literal sense, it means leaving or from a previous, moving from a previous standing. It can be applied to a spiritual departure. It can be. And that's how it's used in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, where the, the apostles were being accused, Paul was being accused of causing people to apostasy from Moses, to apostatize from Moses. But I want, to, I want to highlight the fact that when we're told they were apostatizing in Acts chapter 21, we know it's a spiritual apostasy because we're told it's a spiritual apostasy, a spiritual movement from Moses. Now, we talked about that this morning. We talked about the fact that we are not under the law of Moses because Jesus has fulfilled the law. He came, he said, I don't think I've come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And he did. He fulfilled the law of Moses. And so the temple veil was torn in two. And now there are no more, there are no more temple sacrifices. In fact, God tore the whole temple down. He used the Romans to do it. To show that the sacrificial system and all of that as part of the law of Moses, it is impossible to continue and impossible to replicate because the one sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has become the once for all all sacrifice so we don't have a sacrificial system anymore and you can't have the law of moses without the sacrificial system you can't do it so there is no law of moses anymore so yes paul was calling people to stop living under the law of moses and come and live under the lordship of jesus christ that's what he was calling them to do but i want to i want to emphasize tonight that i believe and others believe again minority view but i'm going to show you why i believe it that this apostasia that is referenced here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not a spiritual departure. It's not apostasy in the modern sense that we use it, but in the ancient sense. It was a, it's talking about a physical departure, and in fact, it's talking about the physical departure of the church. Now, let me give you three reasons why I hold that position. Uh, it's a position held uh, by Dr. Andy Woods, uh, who, uh, by the way, wrote a, a, a neat little book on just this verse and explaining it. He gives 10 reasons why he believes this is the physical departure. Uh, he cites uh, Dr. Kenneth Wiest, who is a Greek uh, expert. Uh, and uh, it, Dr. Wiest takes this as the physical departure, not a spiritual departure. Let me give you just three reasons for sake of time tonight why I believe this is speaking of the physical departure of the church. Number one, the vocabulary allows that interpretation apostasia the noun in the greek can be used and was historically used from time to time to refer to a physical departure going from one place to another and it is noted as such in several greek lexicons um, a similar noun by the way apostasion which is uh, almost the same word but but very similar is notice this it is exclusively used in the new testament to refer to a physical departure or or a leaving and likewise the verb form remember the word apostasia comes from aphistemai uh, the, the the verb form of the word and that word is used 15 times in the new testament of those 15 times 12 times 75 percent it refers to a physical departing not a spiritual departing 
And so that is why all of the earliest English translations of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 used the word, or a form of the word, a, a, a synonym for the word departing. There was the departure, the departing. They didn't use uh, the word apostasy or falling away. They used the word departing. It was changed, uh, I and, and others would argue, not because of the grammar, but because of the theological debate. And that's why it became translated as the falling away or uh, emphasizing a, a spiritual departure. Okay, so similar noun, exclusively used of physical departure. The verb form, 12 of the 15 times used of physical departure. And a physical departure is a grammatically correct way to use that particular word depends on context. So we got to use the context. Now notice also that the grammar supports this interpretation. Paul uses the, def the definite article here. It is not a departure. It is the departure. Now that suggests to us two things. The departure. Two things. Number one, it's a very special event. It is the departure. And number two, it suggests that the reader should know what he's talking about. It suggests that the reader should be able to go, oh, yeah, the departure that you're talking about. Well, what departure is he talking about? There's only one that he's been talking about. There's only one he talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, he's, and there's only one that he's talking about. He's already repeated that here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now, if, our, if Paul says, let me clear up some stuff about the day of the Lord and let me clear up some stuff to you about the gathering of the church when Jesus comes back for the church and then Paul doesn't mention it again, wouldn't that be a little confusing? If Paul says, I'm going to explain to you and clarify to you what I told you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to explain and clarify to you the gathering of the church. And then Paul doesn't mention the gathering of the church. Wouldn't that be kind of bizarre? Wouldn't you say, well, well, Paul, you forgot something. Listen, Paul didn't forget anything. Okay. Holy Spirit did not forget anything. And so by adding the definite article and saying this is the departure, we should go, well, what departure are we talking about? There's only one departure, and that's the gathering of the church. So Paul is saying here, the grammar would support that Paul is saying, I'm talking about something that I've already discussed with you that you should very clearly know, the departure. So the grammar supports this interpretation. And number three, finally, the context encourages this interpretation because Paul's previous message, 1 Thessalonians, his previous message of comfort said that Jesus was coming to deliver believers before and from the coming wrath of God, that we are children of the day. We don't have to be afraid of God's wrath. We won't be here. You are not appointed under wrath. He's already shared that with them. He's already comforted them with that truth. And he's already spent verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1 telling the church the judgment that is coming is not for you. Your trials are now. But the tribulation that is coming is not for you. It's a time of rest for you. 
So he's just been discussing this in chapter 1. How we don't have to stress out about the judgment of God. Because we're not going to be there for it. It's a time of rest for us. And so now again, by context, he presents the message of comfort. And he says, I am basing my comfort. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Don't be afraid because Jesus is coming back and he's going to gather us together for him. And the departure has to take place before the day of the Lord can even begin. And again, this is not only the context of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It is the context of Scripture. Isaiah prophesied it. Zephaniah prophesied it. Jesus prophesied and promised it to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. If the only mistake the Thessalonians were making was the timing of the day of the Lord, if Paul's saying, hey, you're going to ride into the day of the Lord, you better stock up, you better prep. You better be a prepper, guys. That's not comforting. And there's none of that. Paul isn't saying, here's what you got to do to get prepared for the Antichrist. Paul is saying the departure has to happen before the Antichrist can even be unleashed. And so this leads us again to the revelation of the man of sin, verses 3 and 4. Again, we'll look more closely at him and at that next week. But for now, just consider that this end times world leader is going to, the verses say, declare himself to be the God of the Bible. He'll actually do so while sitting in the temple of God, which, by the way, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice specifically tonight that the revealing of the Antichrist is tied to the gathering of the church, the departure. The departure and the revealing of the man of sin. That happens next. Those are the two events. Now, if that's true, Paul should explain that to us and reaffirm that to us. And that's exactly what he does next. And so look at with me at verses 5 through 12. And let's consider Paul's question. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? Listen, listen to what he says. Verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now, let's hit the pause button for a second. Paul has written them a letter and, and clarified some things, but Paul had also taught them face-to-face -face these things. So Paul had taught them certain things, and then he wrote about them to nail them into the wall of that church to say, this is what I have promised you. This is what I have revealed to you in person. This is what I'm codifying, and I'm putting in holy writ for the whole church. And then they still got confused. And Paul's saying, do you guys, have, do you not remember? Do you not remember? We, got, we, went over the, we went over this face to face even before I wrote to you. Remember you not when I was with you, I told you these things. And now ye, no, listen, now ye know, you already know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in this time. He's talking about the man of sin. You know what's holding him back that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Listen, the Antichrist is ready to go. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. John says, 1 John chapter 4, spirit of Antichrist already here, already work, and he wants to get his job done. And the devil wants to get him in place. The devil wants to get his ball rolling. He wants to get his man on the throne. You see, you see all of this happening in Davos right now, the world, self-appointed world elite, 
trying to make decisions for us. Some of them know exactly who they're doing it for. Some of them know exactly who they're serving. They want to use the World Health Organization to do away with human, uh, or with, uh, excuse me, with national governments so that they can put up their one world government and enforce it. Why? So they can hand it off to him. So what's holding it back? What's holding it back? He's being restrained. The spirit of Antichrist, the mystery of iniquity isn't working, but it's being restrained. Only he, notice he, who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. And with this is not going to be a guy performing parlor tricks. Okay, This isn't going to be a guy making rabbits appear out of his hat. This is going to be someone doing mock miracles that uh, likely are imitations of the miracles that Jesus did. And they're going to be demonically, in fact, satanically empowered for him to do what he's going to do to deceive the world. And verse 10, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion. Talk about this next week, Lord willing, that they should believe the lie that all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, let's talk for a moment about what these believers now know and what we should now know. Friend, Paul is using this language, but he's not hiding things from his readers. Paul knows that it's not just the Thessalonians who are going to be reading. So he's not trying to hide. This is not as confusing as people want to make it. People want this to be a really confusing text so that they can push their prophetic narratives. But it's not confusing. Paul is saying, look, you guys know. Now you know. I'm making it as clear as I can make it. We just have to stop and listen to what he's saying. Paul is revealing some truths that are connected to what he's just revealed. The chapter doesn't, it, he doesn't change subjects in verse 5. It all flows together. It's the same subject. The gathering of the church at when Jesus comes back. The departure that unlocks the revealing of the man of sin. They're logically connected in the first part of the chapter. And he's repeating what he's just told us here in the second part of the chapter. And so let me show you a couple of things. There is both, there's two things here that I want to point out to you. There is both a what withholdeth and a who that now letteth. Now don't let the ye old King James confuse you. Here, let me make it simple for you. There is a restrainer and a restraining force. There's a force, there's something that the restrainer is using to hold back the Antichrist but it's really the restrainer who is the one doing the work. And I put the restrainer as capital R restrainer. Because there's only one person who can single-handedly hold back all of the devil's plans and all of the devil's armies. And he can do it with one hand tied behind his back. In fact, he can do it with both hands tied behind his back. And that's the Holy Spirit of God. That is the angel of the Lord. I believe I've told you before, taught you before, I believe the angel of the Lord is the Holy Spirit, not 
pre-incarnate Messiah Jesus. I believe the angel of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. I've already gone through why I believe that. I'm not going to do that again tonight. But I believe that the restrainer can only be the Holy Spirit. There is no angel powerful enough. Even if there was an angel powerful enough, they do not yet, yet, yet have the authority to restrain the devil. And we know that because Jude tells us about an encounter that the archangel Michael had with Satan. And even Jude says even the archangel Michael wouldn't curse the devil in this plane where he is has been given authority. He would only be able to say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Even Michael's hands were not yet able to wrap around the throat of the dragon. That, now that day's coming. That day's coming in Revelation chapter 20. The, a mighty angel is going to finally be given the authority to go grab the devil and drag him to the pit. But there is no angel yet who has that authority or power. Only the angel of the Lord. Only the Holy Spirit has the power. He is the one who now letteth. Remember what 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he, who is he that's in you? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Who is he that's in the world? 1 John chapter 4, the Antichrist. The Spirit of Antichrist is in the world. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Only the Holy Spirit has the power. And today, the Holy Spirit indwells each believer, but he also indwells corporately the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? He's speaking corporately to the church. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit is indwelling the church corporately today? And so because the Holy Spirit is the restrainer, and notice he will move out of the way, move out of the midst. He's saying, Paul's revealing to us that the mission that the Holy Spirit was sent to accomplish on the day of Pentecost will become completed and he will step out of the way. Well, what's the mission? Well, part of the mission is to fill the church, to give birth to the church, to fill the church, to empower the church. When's that mission going to end? When we ain't here anymore. When we're gone, when Jesus comes and gathers us together and when we have departed the scene, which Paul's already completely explained to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because we're not children of wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will not be here. And so what Paul is saying is the restrainer is using the restraining force. And in context, that would be the church. The restrainer is using the, the church as a restraining force. The prayers of the saints the ministry of the saints, the light of the world is Jesus, but ye are also in Christ, the light of the world, because his light is shining in us and through us. So don't hide it. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't try to hide it. Be open about it because you are now Christ in you. You are the light of the world. And so when the light leaves, the spirit's mission will be done. The church must and will go with him and that will be the event that unrestrains the man of sin we are what withholdeth and we will do so as we are empowered by the spirit of the lord until it is the time it is the antichrist time 
to be revealed. So Paul is simply restating what he's already revealed to us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He's already reiterating and clarifying what he shared at the end of chapter 1 and what he shared at the end of chapter 2. It all fits together when you let it fit together. The day of the Lord cannot begin until the Antichrist is revealed. Antichrist cannot be revealed. He's part of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 6. He's part of God's wrath, but he cannot be revealed until the restrainer lets go. And the restrainer is not going to let go until he takes us to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is why Jesus said the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. But when the church is gone, the gates of Hades are going to prevail. Not against us, but against the world. And so then and only then, verses 8 through 12, shall the wicked be revealed. I'm not going to unpack what we covered last week, but let me just remind you, two tribulations, tribulation of the church today, tribulation of the world, that's coming when the church is gone. But two tribulations, one great hope. Jesus is coming back. He's going to gather us together. There will be the departure and the man of sin will be unrestrained and all hell's going to break loose. You want to be in the departure. You don't want to be left behind with the man of sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the great blessed hope that you will come and get your bride, that you will gather us together and that we will meet you in the air and so shall we ever be with you, Jesus. Father, as the world gets darker and darker, may that hope encourage us to let our light shine and to be the light of the world you've called us to be, knowing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against your church. Help us to stand in courage. Help us to stand in hope. Help us to pray as men and women who are warriors of God, warriors standing against principalities, wrestling with, with the powers and, and the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places knowing that it is Christ in us, it is the very Spirit of God, and that greater is He in us, Father, than He that is in the world. We thank You for that. We praise You. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The hour, I kept you a little long tonight, so no invitation time tonight, but God bless you. If you have a need, I'm here after the service. Hope to see you Wednesday night for our study on One Minute After You Die. God bless you. You are dismissed. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful.